Hello, everybody. Welcome to the University of Sydney. Thank you all for coming. It's obviously um, an interesting topic. My name's Catherine Bartomode-Orflick, and I'm the co-chair of the Sydney Learning Analytics Research Group, along with Abelardo Pardo here. And he'll be um, hosting and Q&A and things with George and introducing George. I'd like to um, begin our time together by acknowledging and paying respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. And we share, as we share our knowledge today in teaching, learning, research practices, learning analytics, neuroscience, within this university, we also pay respect to the knowledge forever embedded within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. I'd also like to acknowledge the support of um, Deputy Vice-Chancellor Education, Pitt Patterson, who sponsored this event and um, is in Melbourne today, but sends her apologies for not being able to be there. Just wanted to give you a quick overview of um, analytics at Sydney before we um, pass on to George. So we've established just late last year a new research group. So if you're interested, if you're local um, to Sydney University and you're interested, that's how to do that, and there's a flyer on the back. This is one of our first events, I guess, and I'll also be announcing a new initiative that we have just hot off the press, which is our first travel grant to attend the Educational Data Mining Conference. So um, there should be a handout at the back as well, but that's on our website. So all the details are there, and if you have any questions about EDM as a conference, Kalina who's sort of waving over the side there, would be able to answer any questions. That's her specialty area. I just wanted to acknowledge that there is already existing um, capability at the university in these different areas. Um, we'd be, LARG, the Learning Analytics Research Group, has been set up in partnership and as a SIG of the new Centre for Research on Learning and Innovation. So if you're interested in joining that centre, um, that's the link to go to as well to uh, register your interest in becoming a member. And then also wanted to acknowledge Chai Latte and the, the newer human-centred technology research cluster. So all of our uh, LARG leadership team is also involved in these other groups, so we're trying to stay connected across the university, work together. Also, um, we're really pleased that we've got some learning analytics tools now in the hands of our teachers this semester. Um, and this is an outline of, of some of those there. There's a workshop if you're an academic here at the university or involved in teaching in any way and you're interested in more uh, tools that you can use in your own teaching, then there's some of this available as well and there'll be a workshop on a, a system that you can use to personalise your communications with students. So um, there's reports now available in Blackboard that you can go and find. So we'll shoot. Um, these slides to you, so if anyone's interested, you can click on links and things. The key contact for um, the teaching side of learning analytics at the university is Adam Bridgman, who I, oh, he's at the back. <laughs> so as well, you can have a chat with him. Okay, um, and a freebie. So if you're at Sydney University as a student or a staff member, we've um, recently become institutional members of SOLAR. And that means that you can join for free. Um, so that's free membership of the society, but that also means you get discounts off of their events and conferences and things as well. Okay, if you're tweeting today, these are the tags to use if you'd like to. And over to you, Abelardo, I think. Okay, I had prepared five or six pages of a speech, but I'm gonna skip all of them and go straight to, to the point. Introducing your Siemens is in a sense kind of easy because a lot of people know know him. He's the current director of the LINK uh, Research Lab, uh, LINK ne a Network Knowledge Research Lab at the uh, University of Texas at Arlington. Before that, he was also at the Center for Distant Education and he was a strategist uh, of the Technology Enhanced Knowledge Research Institute at Athabasca University. And before that, he was also at Manitoba University as member, Associate Director of Research Development with Learning Technology Center. One of the things that he's mostly known for is that back in 2008, together with Stephen Dunn, they both organized an online course which was open and it was, which was available to anyone. It was titled CCK08 Connectivism and Connective Knowledge. And for a lot of us and for a lot of people, that was the first MOOC or initiative that pointed on that direction. Uh, 
you probably will also know the contribution of George Siemens as the one that proposed the connectivism approach to learning, and that's pretty much the common thread across his initiatives. He is an expert at connecting different disciplines, connecting people. The anecdote that I have about that is back in 2011, it's almost exactly five years ago, last week, he ran in Hindsight, I think it was a social experiment, social science experiment. He decided to uh, organize this conference very quickly uh, with barely any notice to anyone in the middle of winter, in the middle of Canada, freezing temperatures, and I think he wanted to make sure that people that attended that event were truly focused on just the topic, not the surrounding, because it was quite hostile, 37 degrees below freezing. And there's no need to clarify if it was Fahrenheit and Celsius because it makes no difference. It was very cold. So a bunch of us gathered together there in the first learning, analytics, and knowledge conference. And it was George's and uh, Dragan Gasevich's idea to get together people to discuss about connecting big data with uh, education. And it worked. Now we are in our sixth edition, which is going to happen in Edinburgh. We have the Society for Learning Analytics Research. Uh, there is a journal on learning analytics. So as you can see, uh, George Siemens has always been connecting different domains. Obviously very active in social networks, especially Twitter. If you go to his Facebook page, you can also learn that he was suspended from school in year seven uh, for the first time, which gives me a lot of hope for one of my kids. Um, but as you can see, there is this tradition of bridging together uh, different disciplines. And this is part of the topic that we're gonna see here today. We're gonna see how different areas can be bridged, and there is a narrative in the middle that is useful for pretty much everyone. Um, personally, I have the pleasure to work with George Siemens fairly closely. I am a member of his research lab as well in UT, uh, in University of Texas at Arlington, and I have experienced firsthand like he is one of the most uh, generous and approachable researchers, so I encourage you to establish connection with him, a conversation, he'll take questions, he'll take the tough ones, and check for yourself if this is true. So without any further ado, please help me welcome Professor Joe Siemens. Well, let's hope this works. Thanks, Abelardo, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to spend a bit of time with you today. One of the things I find most interesting uh, about coming to Australia, I mean, first of all, it's the land of absolutely glorious weather, amazing seafood, and people who can say budgie smugglers with a straight face and not think that that's anything unusual. So it's always a real privilege to be uh, in Australia and certainly to talk about learning analytics because Australia very much is a central space in the learning analytics uh, community. Uh, you've got folks like Abelardo Pardo, Shane the Bastard Dawson at UniSA, uh, Simon Buckingham Shum at UTS and others uh, that are really driving the activity in learning analytics forward and so you've got a very deep, rich level of expertise so it's a tremendous privilege to be able to spend some time with you today. I'm going to talk about four things, take probably about 20, 25 minutes or so to go through these, and then uh, we'll have some time for questions and certainly chat after that. Specifically, I want to do just a very rudimentary overview or background on, on what research is. It's kind of a pretty basic question, uh, but like anything else, if you've taken an educational research course or something comparable, you have to spend some time at least articulating your epistemological, ontological orientations and how that in turn frames the methodologies that you select and so on. By the way, I, I did a talk recently on CBC, it's the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in Canada, and uh, one of the comments after it was done was somebody said, he spoke in a jargon that is nearly incomprehensible in English. So if I do that, then just feel free to pause and ask questions. Uh, the second thing, we'll talk a little bit about neuroscience. It's very important to reference, though, I'm not talking about neuroscience as this is how you do neuroscience. I'm seeing neuroscience as a data collection mechanism that influences learning analytics and how, in turn, that impacts what we do in an educational space. Then I'm going to turn to an area where I have a greater level of interest, uh, personally, and experience, which is learning analytics. And then, finally, I'm going to spend a little bit of time looking at something that might come to uh, resemble a bit of uh, articulation. So first of all, this is a pretty obvious question, but I mean, what is research? You know, and what is it that we're doing when we engage in research? And if you, uh, oddly enough, if you spend some time searching that simple term that all of us are, uh, we speak on a regular basis, we conduct it in a daily basis, we apply grants for it and so on. So you'd think that it's something that have a fairly clearly defined view, but if you're randomly bored, spend some time just searching what is research. And you'll find it's incredibly vague what it actually is, but generally it says something like you're doing some stuff 
to gain some knowledge and to contribute to knowledge and some practical application. And it doesn't matter how many different sites you visit, whether it's an academic site, whether it's a jargony Wikipedia type of site, but basically research as we do it is reasonably poorly defined. So I'm going to just advance a rough uh, overview of what research is, and that is that basically it's an exploration of relationships. In particular, we're looking at relationships between variables and the factors that impact those relationships. So for example, at one point, there was this view that if we cut open a human vein and we just let them bleed for a while, that they would get better because we need to let that blood out. Now, today we would know that's not necessarily the best treatment, even though you're finding in certain cases where you've got a restricted blood flow, the use of leeches to accomplish something simple is actually still effective. By the same account, if you take certain medication, if you take this type of, let's say, an SSRI, what impact does it have on your emotional or mental health? And so that's essentially what we're doing when we engage in this process is what is the relationship between this thing and that thing? It gets very difficult when you start to look at it in a complex space, and that's one of the big drawbacks with research traditionally, is that we try and reduce things to a set of controlled variables. It's one of the reasons why educational research is a dog's breakfast in terms of the quality of the resources and in terms of the output, partly because we have such a difficult time identifying the variables that matter. And even if the variables matter, in educational settings in particular, a relationship is only true contingent on the context and the related factors. So yes, this could be appropriate in this context, but if the context changes, that's no longer true. So really educational research, probably best described as two conditions. One, it occurs in a complex space, and secondly, it's highly contingent on if-then statements, because that's ultimately uh, the, the failures, because we're trying to generalize out of things that are inherently not generalizable. But nonetheless, that's my view. That's what research is when we're engaging in an educational setting, is we want to understand relationships, and we want to understand which factors impact the nature of those relationships. And so in the past, what we've done is to try and cope with this, and I'll get on to the next slide a little bit, but we've basically uh, looked at creating some kind of a proxy. I mean, it's very difficult for us to get directly into the human brain and muck around in there and not kill the person. And so because of that limitation, uh, we've started to use proxies that give us an indication of what's happening. And so we're really one stage removed. It's almost like if we were sitting behind a curtain and somebody was you know, telling us to please analyze and understand you know, what this rock formation is. And we couldn't directly interact with the rock formation, but we had to ping in there occasionally. Or we'd have to develop devices that would give us some kind of structural indication of what's there. You know, maybe sonar would give us an indication of the shape that's there, but it wouldn't give us an actual constru uh, construct of what it looks like. And admittedly, after a patient dies, we can slice the brain and we can have a look at exactly what's there, but we don't get the real-time firing. And so we're always playing with proxies, and that's really a bit of a challenge educationally, uh, is that we're, uh, hmm, a slide is gone. Okay, anyway, so in the past, these proxies were behavioral or cognitive structures. So we would try and say, well, if, if a person does this, we think it might mean that. And then we would use that sort of as our basis of understanding and moving forward. As a result, uh, we focused very heavily in, in learning and educational related settings around theories and frameworks. Initially, especially in education, we adopted and learning uh, analytics as well. We borrowed heavily from psychology and sociology. Learning analytics, we also borrowed, borrowed heavily from, from uh, math, stats, and uh, computer science fields. And so we instead tried to articulate this as this is what we think is happening. We don't really know but to the best of our ability, this is what we think is going on. And we're always playing with these very conditional and very limited knowledge statements. With neuroscience, the intent then was to start to turn a conversation into uh, we can better understand the human brain with a series of imaging techniques or through a series of, uh, whether it's observational uh, activities or description, I'll give you a list of prominent neuroscience uh, data collection practices, but we can try to understand human behavior and more specifically, in, in my interest at least, learning related behavior by better understanding the structure and the functioning of the human brain. Now, uh, initially there was this interest, which, and this is the thing that just amuses me enormously with science, but uh, so initially we, we get an idea that gets attention, but it's wrong, but it's wrong for the wrong reasons. It actually ends up being right later on, but because we were wrong initially, we just throw the whole thing out. But initially there was this view that was being advanced by folks like uh, Franz Josef Gall that the human brain had functional regions of activity and that those functional regions then actually could be determined by analysis of a patient's skull. 
And so you had a period from the 1820s to 1840s where there was tremendous interest in let's analyze the structure of the human head and that'll give us insight into a person. So let's say you have a bulbous head and you go in and somebody would basically say this is what you are because this is how we understand your skull. Uh, you know, and, and that carried a lot of weight because there was a lot of emphasis on this is the first time we can actually understand what's going on in a person's head. Now, after a short period of receiving a lot of attention, eventually it was basically debunked and the view that there was structural uh, or component-based functioning, lobe-based functioning of the human brain was largely dismissed as, as being nonsense. Even when you had researchers like Paul Bacchiarita coming into the 1960s, and he was the one that really introduced and advanced the idea of uh, plasticity and neuroplasticity, which meant that the brain can change, and actually you can have regions of the brain that are devoted to one type of functioning take over activity that was previously handled by a different region of the brain. So a couple of his studies, and this largely drove out of uh, interest with his father who had a stroke, where he really started advancing the idea of neuroplasticity, uh, was he discovered that he could, a patient for example, and one of his prominent statements is that we don't see with our eyes, we see with our brain. And uh, he had one of his, his famous studies essentially involved putting a camera on, on the head of a patient and attaching a sensor to the tongue and a patient would actually be able to see very imperfectly, but at least shapes and structures through their tongue. And the, so the, the view here is that it's not your eyes, but it's the processing that happens in your brain. Now today, given there's around 60,000 papers published annually that relate to something that looks like neuroscience. There's this enormous explosion today, and, and now we're, we're much better acquainted with the idea of component-based functioning within the human brain, but at the time this was completely nonsensical when Paul Bakhirin in particular started advancing some of the, these ideas, it was essentially a throwback, sort of a uh, phrenology type of view. And it was largely rejected until over time the recognition that even though there are localized function areas of the brain, uh, that functioning can actually transfer to a different region of the brain in certain cases where there have been some, some type of injury. But the difficulty is that the analysis work that's now being done within neuroscience is insanely complex and the scope and the complexity of these approaches are uh, confounded not just by the complexity but by actually the, the jargon that sits within this particular space. So there's four primary things then that when you're involved in understanding uh, neuroscience and neuroscience practices that researchers are particularly engaged in. And, uh, I'll go through those primarily. The primary one I want to look at, uh, or at least addresses the second one, but one example is a case study example. Screens are another a prominent secondary, well, I'd say primary example. Description and then manipulation. And essentially with screens, and these are things that you'll hear about most often, but these are imaging techniques that are engaged in by researchers who are trying to understand what happens when this is going on. When a learner is doing this task, what's happening in their brain? And you might have heard of of fMRI techniques or even EEG techniques that'll be used to try and give us some indication of what's happening in the brain and what might those implications be. The key issue though is we're still dealing with proxies. We're still saying something's going on behind this curtain. We're going to assume it's this thing even though we can be somewhat inaccurate. And I'll get onto that in a couple slides. Uh, there's two initiatives though within the neuroscience field that I want to highlight in particular in terms of resources at least. Probably the best resource, and this is largely due to the commitment to openness and the commitment to community or team-based science, is what you'll see at uh, the Allen Institute. So the Allen Institute is actually founded by Paul Allen, who is a co-founder of Microsoft, and he's invested billions in understanding really two things, human cellular activity and, for our purposes here at least, the human brain. And the activity he's involved with, if you certainly go to his site, there's an enormous amount of data and tools that are freely available for researchers to collect and use. They emphasize openness at every corner, which means that a lot of their software tools and a lot of their data sets are freely available for researchers and students to be able to download and incorporate. And they have some tool sets available to try and help make sense of that. And increasingly, they're starting to add tutorial resources, which means if you're going to start with this but you really don't know where to go, this is one avenue to pursue. So it's an enormously helpful resource, and it's interesting that in this case, at least much of neuroscience activity in the US, all hail President Trump, is actually coming from a completely different type of perspective than uh, we've typically seen from an academic overview. A second one, the Human Brain Project. This is, uh, you might be familiar with, uh, with Professor Markham as a researcher. His, it's, this is quite controversial, uh, there's a lot of, even though some folks think it's, it's a chunk of nonsense, but basically it's been about a range of a billion 
euros that have been allocated to the Human Brain Project to essentially begin initially by mapping rodents' brains and eventually over a period of time progressively begin to fully map the human brain. The big thing that Professor Markham is attempting to do is to say so much of the research that's happening in the educational landscape, or a neuroscience landscape I should say, is happening in a manner that's disconnected meaning that we're seeing small level relationships. So it might be certain kinds of image that indicate certain kind of functionality, but there's no attempt to globalize or integrate or bring these different things together. So this project, as you could imagine, with a billion plus euros is an enormously complex project. Um, but of these two, I'd say these are two of the more pronounced or more relevant projects happening. Now, with that, just a very little bit of background, I'll return a bit to some of the things that we have learned from a neuroscience framework, but for now I just want to address some of the challenges that exist. So one, this is a huge problem, and this is that anybody with a random interest can start talking about neuroscience, myself excluded. I have deep expertise in slicing the human brain. Um, but uh, anyone with a random interest can start talking neuroscience. And there's a really fascinating paper uh, that looked at the seductive allure of neuroscience explanation. Basically what it would take is a group of individuals and it would give them a reasonably nonsensical statement and ask, is it true? And students who are obviously bright would say, no, that's nonsense. They would take similar statements and then they would present it in neurospeak. And then students, even though the, the neuroscience explanations in no way contributed to the accuracy of the statement, they were actually quite irrelevant, suddenly that same student population was unable to as consistently identify nonsense. So there's something very seductive about the inclusion of uh, neuroscience language. And something to be aware of is that often it's presented as something that's hard and fast truth, but in reality, uh, there, it's, it's a far more complex understanding than what's being presented. You know, for example, I remember years ago uh, hearing a lot of interest in brain-based education. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with that movement at the time. And I'm thinking, well, what the hell else is it going to be? It's like saying I'm engaged in butt-based sitting. Like, what are my other options? Right? Like, I'm going to use my brain. Anyway, uh, off topic. Uh, that's, that's one of the issues that we face, is there's a lot of this, this kind of language that's intimidating and overwhelming for individuals. Um, this is one of my favorite studies, though. So what this individual did is he went to a fish market. And so functional, uh, if you look at functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRIs, you'll be familiar, you often see these images of these parts of the brains are lighting up and this is what it might mean. So what this individual did was uh, he took a, went to a fish market and he bought a dead salmon and he put it in an fMRI machine and he asked, showed it particular images and then he would scan which regions of the brain would activate as the dead salmon saw these different images. Now, uh, and then of course published it as a poster. But it's just this illustration that, like, and he did, he actually had some interesting results that came out of it. But the whole point he was trying to make was let's have, let's have a little bit of uh, humility around our assessment of what some of the technologies are doing because as I mentioned right at the start, we're essentially operating with proxies that serve as a mediating descriptor for what's happening with a phenomenon that we can't directly engage in. A second challenge that exists is that uh, it's a small N that we're essentially dealing with. And if, about six weeks ago or so, uh, a colleague and I visited uh, Richie Davidson, who runs a, a lab, a Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin. It does a lot of really interesting work, particularly focused on, on mindfulness and overall health of individuals and contemplative practices. And one of the things that came out of the conversation was just the different views that the view that he had around research and, and what I found, to, you know, the, the difference in some of my own views. So his views, which would be, I think, be the norm in many traditional science spaces, is you need a very uh, well-designed research uh, process. You have to account for any peripheral variables that are going to throw off your core interpretation. You have to go through this process where you're dealing with a small n. You might be able to push a patient or a subject or two through in a two or three hour period, but you're dealing with a small n. Now, as, uh, as a colleague had mentioned, well, yeah, the n might be small, but you actually have really, really deep data. There's an enormous amount of data being generated during some of these uh, imaging uh, processes. But the main issue here is that when you have a small n, even though it's deep, you lose something in the process, which I'll get into a little, more, a little bit in a, uh, in a few slides where I talk about the relevance of uh, data and analytics in a more sloppier approach. But it, was just, it struck me how different this view of a traditional science view exists and how, let's say, the views that some of us in the data and analytics space are starting to interpret as suitable methods for research and evaluation. Another challenge is it's very difficult to walk around with an MRI machine on your head 
And so as a result of that difficulty, the data collection that happens when you're involved in some of this research is decontextualized, meaning that you don't have the actual situation in which learners are engaged in certain kind of functioning or certain kind of activity. I'll touch on that later. And for us in the educational space, there's a huge challenge in that there really hasn't been enormous implications educationally in spite of the hype. There's been a lot of talk, but it hasn't cashed out really in terms of uh, dramatic changes in educational practices. But with that said, and some of those negative orientations, we do know a lot about uh, the brain and we know a lot about particularly how the brain influences and impacts us in educational settings. So things like neuroplasticity, the fact that this idea that at a certain age you just can't learn anymore, I mean that's quite clearly been debunked if you want to call it that, but the recognition that our brains are plastic. And not only plastic in terms of perpetual learning, but as I mentioned earlier, plastic in terms of which functions or regions of the brain conduct which level of processing. The other aspect, the global and regional attributes, particularly the brain structure, a lot more of an understanding of what about the environmental impacts of, uh, uh, and the nutritional impacts of our health. So for example, a child that eats, let's say, donuts and uh, drinks a fair bit of pop is going to have a certain impact uh, physically, uh, not just in terms of their body, but also in terms of their brain, in terms of their, their functioning by the kinds of food they're intaking. The emotional and physical health is another factor, the relationship between that. So individuals who are, uh, there's a recent report uh, that came out that addressed an individual who was physically active and practiced contemplative activities such as being mindful of the present moment showed a significant reduction over a three to six month period of uh, depression and anxiety through practicing physical activity. So one of the attributes that's quite fascinating is the the idea of the mind or the brain as an embodied entity. So while historically we've had philosophers for thousands of years that have, and religious experts that have discussed the mind, it's only more recently that we focus on the brain, and it's only more recently that we've actually started to recognize the brain and the body as, as a uh, component or a shared infrastructure. A lot of details also around development, uh, developmental strategies, certain stages, I mean these are things you might be aware of in terms of key language acquisition stages and then that diminishes after a certain stage. You know, when you're young you can pick up roughly any language very effortlessly and speak it without an accent. Once you get to be uh, into your later teens, uh, mid-teens, that ability starts to diminish and eventually uh, if you learn a new language later on, uh, you'll most likely speak it with an accent. Also understanding a lot more of the uh, processes, and these are biological, like namely hereditary and experiential as well, around learning activities around uh, numeracy and literacy activities. So we have a fairly good understanding of the brain in terms of its educational role and impact. Uh, we're also starting to see a lot more of awareness coming out around the multi-pathway different discipline models for starting to recognize and bring in how we conduct educational research and how we move that kind of research into an actual practice. Particularly the idea of moving from a laboratory into a classroom is quite central because while there are, as I mentioned, 60,000 plus papers published annually, much of that, now not all of that's related to educational context, a lot of that could be related to things like autism or it could be related to where there's been uh, brain injuries and how to re repair or improve uh, brain health for, for someone who's had a damaged or diminished capacity. But even then there's an enormous amount that still has an educational component or educational implications and that just doesn't make it into classrooms at a significant or a sustained rate. Also in our context today, uh, growing recognition of at least the neurobiological underpinnings of things like our own morality. One of the challenges that courts are starting to face in regions uh, like the US and certainly uh, I'm more familiar there, I'll help President Trump going forward, is that in the future a lot of what we're going to be doing in court context is what does it mean when someone has a lesion in a brain, they committed a crime and yet it wasn't a volitional commitment of a crime. It was something that by having a, a certain lesion or a damage or a tumor or whatever else it might have been, you know, they, they were unable to do anything but the thing that they did or at least they couldn't understand the moral implications and so on. So we're gonna start to see a lot of the view of what is morality 
being impacted in the judicial system over the, the next several decades because it's not this idea that we've long had from a humanist tradition, you know, that I think therefore I am, is being now augmented, I think, but there's an underpinning biological, neurobiological structure that's influencing what I am. And that's going to have different implications for education, for society, and certainly for uh, the legal system as well. All right, so then turning uh, to the, the space of learning analytics, I'll run through this quickly. But uh, so learning analytics is an area that uh, Abelardo mentioned, a group of us in this room have been involved with for about uh, six years or so. Uh, it's essentially builds on the idea of a new model of research. So the fourth paradigm, data intensive scientific discovery, uh, largely laid this out for a lot of individuals in the data and analytics fields in 2009. Uh, there was a few people uh, that picked up on this, so there was the, the interest that Anderson and others published on that in the future we're not going to have hypothesis-driven science, it's all going to be data-mined science, uh, which is overstated as it often is with a Silicon Valley-focused uh, article or journal, but the idea at least is that we're entering a new age of discovery where the data speaks in ways that traditional research methods haven't spoken. And as a result of that interest, much of our focus then, and this is reflected by uh, this article that was uh, written by uh, Norvig, I'll just emphasize him, but, but Halvian Norvig, uh, Norvig's uh, chief scientist at Google, and it was called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Data. And the essential argument being put forward was built on a previous paper called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics, but basically they advanced this idea that you can use probabilistic models in terms of language translation. And that if you have a large enough data set, in this case, all the language ever spoken, you can start to predict what will come after a certain word simply because you have all the language ever spoken. And so the view here, which is in contrast to what I talked about earlier within a neurobiological approach, the view with the big data or a learning analytics mindset is we're often dealing with big, sloppy, fuzzy data. We're still dealing with proxies. In this case, we're dealing with inferences. But we do have a benefit of scale. And the, the uh, call, as put together by Halvi and Norvig, uh, Norvig, is this idea of so, for lack of a better word, follow the data. Uh, see what the data says. Obviously, any time we apply some kind of organization around that data, we're influencing what we see by the al algorithms that we apply. But the bigger point is that we, with a large enough data set, to slightly abuse Raymond's term, instead of all bugs are shallow, but with a large enough data sets, all inconsistencies are at least minimized. So I guess this idea then of the world in our setting today is basically one big data problem. Uh, we are the products in many cases. We've got companies like Apple that are uh, taking the FBI or at least fighting the FBI in court in terms of building backends for additional data collection into their physical devices. But data today is simply the most valuable resource that exists in the human world. And it's a resource that is driving the economics of roughly every major company. Whether that is a mineral or a mining company, it'll be data-centric. Whether it's healthcare, it'll be data-centric. Whether it's a company like IBM or Google or whatever else, they're data-centric, which means quite simply that is the currency of a digital world. Data is the currency of a digital world. And in an educational setting, we, at our first conference, put together a non-jargony term in terms of what, defining what learning analytics is. And the basic idea is something around we measure, we collect data, we analyze so that we can better understand our learners and the context in which their learning occurs so that we have the opportunity to improve it. And so the view that we had at least in bringing this together was we wanted folks from both the uh, social sciences and the computing sciences and bringing together individuals that maybe didn't regularly speak to one another but that each held part of the puzzle. To put that into a little more context, we ended up looking at learning analytics as something that's focused on systems and holes. We wanted the entire scope of the learner. We didn't want to see it as a decontextualized single variable relationship. We wanted to recognize the complexity that's inherent in learning practices. And uh, with educational data mining, this is based on a paper that I did with Ryan Baker, uh, which is focused more so on reducing components and analyzing those single variable relationships. Another aspect is, Learning analytics is not academic analytics. Academic analytics is what you see in a lot of universities now where you're basically applying business intelligence to education. Or put another way, you're taking the productivity mindset of corporations and bringing them into educational settings. 
So that's academic analytics. And in my instance, at least when I talk learning analytics, it needs to involve a learner, it needs to involve a teacher, it needs to involve the institution. Um, in terms of the techniques that we engage in, compare those to some of the techniques I referenced earlier within uh, neuroscience. Uh, we're looking at uh, prediction in terms of understanding what might happen in terms of a, a learner. We're looking at the uh, discovery of a structure that exists within data. We're looking at relationship mining, discovery with models, and ultimately distillation of data for uh, human judgment. So our interest there is in mastering the relationships and the contextual factors that influence the relationship between variables. One of the drawbacks, or a number of drawbacks, is that Within learning analytics, we really haven't done a great job with the social and the affect. Uh, this is difficult to address. In fact, one of the challenges it's difficult, and I know there have been some work of folks that have, have looked at uh, different components to this from an analytics uh, lens, and I think uh, Ruth Deacon Crick and others uh, that have looked at this would argue somewhat differently uh, than what I'm presenting here, but the essential view is that we haven't done a good job with taking the data we're generating and using that to understand social and affective components. We've instead looked very heavily at limited data sets that include the uh, log files that we're, we're working with. They might include some contextual location-based data. There might be some level of discourse analysis. There might be network analysis and so on. Uh, my interest much more so these days, and this is related to work that Abelardo is doing here and, and uh, Rafael Calvo and others are engaged in, which is trying to do a better job of understanding what does it mean to be involved in learning in whole body, whole person learning. And so we're looking more so at using wearables and, and ambient technologies that will enable us to understand some of the bio or the physical interactions as learners engage, as well as movement across campus and so on. I've already addressed the mechanical aspect. This comes partly from MOOCs really put learning analytics on the radar of a lot of R1 or top research universities in the US. Because suddenly people who didn't know that you could have a theory of learning, people in the computer science and engineering, sorry, Abelardo, would end up saying that, oh, we discovered learning. And as a result of that discovery, they were publishing paper that you, know, you might have read in 1960s if you were in the educational field. And so that was driven by the computer scientists from systems like Stanford and MIT. And we ended up with a very mechanical view of what learning is and what was happening. Another aspect is that while there was some contextual focus in the learning and the data collection practices, it was poorly integrated, which means that the functions that individual engage in with engaging in a, in a MOOC platform or a learning management system often wasn't connected to profile development. I mean, even now, Coursera and edX have done a very poor job of developing profiles of their learners and an even poorer job of starting to uh, enable individuals to connect with one another in a peer-based or social network way. And uh, the, we have only limited use of uh, biophysiological data so far. I think wearables will change that in a statement that I say just because I can randomly and nobody says bullshit to me yet, is that wearables are going to be much bigger in the educational setting than mobiles are, simply because of the scope and the impact of the data that we're getting from wearable devices that we can at least get from wearable devices. So there'll be a bigger pack impact educationally in terms of research opportunities than uh, mobile devices have. Um, final point here before I just do a bit of brief promotion is that I think we also need to turn our attention to, even though there's a lot of lack of interest with organizing schemes and physical approaches to understanding uh, the world or learning activities, meaning that we're emphasizing data over focusing on the, um, the development of theories and frameworks that we can use to describe what's happening. Uh, so. 2004, when I was even more of an idiot than I am now, I uh, posited this idea of connectivism, which is a network theory of learning, and essentially argued that, and I apologize to all the social constructivists in the room, uh, and I've had a few engagements with researchers in social construction related fields, as the question I often ask is, you know, biologically, what does learning look like for a constructivist? Now, in fairness, anybody who's a social constructivist, there's about 8,000 flavors of it, so it's, you know, they always squirm out if you try and put your thumb down. But uh, the general view uh, is that, well, one individual said, well, I couldn't care less where it resides in a constructivist framework. Biologically, that's not what I'm interested in. And in fact, if you're familiar with, uh, with the idea of radical constructivism, the view that von Glasfeld and others would reply is, well, actually, you're trying to impose your framework of logic on constructivism, so they would just outright reject the question. 
but so with that as a backdrop, I'll just recognize, I'll pay homage to the constructivists in our midst, is that uh, in a network frame, we can describe learning at every single stage that it occurs, whether it's at a biological level, the work of Olaf Sporns and others similarly indicate that activity in the neocortex has a similar activity when we're engaged in learning processes as does a small world network. There's an existence of hubs, existence of weak ties and strong ties across these different lobal regions of the brain. So at a biological level, we can describe learning through a network process and the formation of that. Same thing at a conceptual level. A lot of this draws on work that's come out of physics. At a conceptual level, the process of learning in networks is driven by our understanding that concepts are related to other concepts. Some of the work of uh, researchers like David Ausubel, which looks at the idea of subsuming one concept within the framework of another concept when we're learning so that we understand things in relation to other things. Uh, this is the idea that's you know, pretty basic. If you're a psychologist and somebody introduces a new, new concept of memory, you'd understand what it means because you have the basis and the background. If you're a farmer, it won't mean a hell of a lot to you because you have nothing to hang that new idea onto. But if you're a farmer, you understand details related to land management and fertilization and so on, something that a psychologist wouldn't have anything to hang on to. So this idea then, and prominent in certainly physics, and a lot of the work that we're doing now with, uh, with Smart Sparrow and uh, ASU around the INSPARC or the Smart Science Network is focused on this, is that concepts in science and science instruction are related. And so when these concepts are understood, and in fairness for companies that are involved in adaptive learning like Newton, that's essentially what their entire model is built on, is the relationship between concepts. And then finally, the third level at which I'll say learning is networked is the social and external level. More and more learning is a function of how we're connected, not just socially, which it was certainly uh, over the last decade or so with the growth of uh, Web 2.0 and eventual social media, but much more so at the broad overview of technologies that now serve as cognitive aids. And when you have organizations, whether it's like IBM and others that are emphasizing cognitive technologies or Deloitte uh, that emphasize the value of, of having human cognition offloaded onto technology agents, you can start to see that in the future we're going to be intelligent as technology networks. Even as individuals, we'll be part of extended technology networks that essentially hold our capability for intelligence. Final couple points is, uh, well, last slide on actually uh, that's at all useful is related to the idea of integration approaches between work that's happening in neuroscience and activity that's happening in the data and the analytics fields. And I mean, you can read them yourself, but the idea generally is that we need to do a better job of building bridges. We need to do a better job of integrating the tools and the technologies that we get and that we develop based on uh, a research orientation. There have been instances in, in, this was recently in the, in the US, uh, there's a growing number of apps that promise to make you intelligent or at least make you smarter. They keep your brain young and active. And a lot of the claims being made just simply aren't carrying through to research. And these are significant issues. So this does need to uh, start to become a greater source of focus. Big challenges around leadership and leadership development. A lot of individuals in research, or I should say have a leadership position, uh, have so through an existing framework that uh, rewarded the progression of a faculty member to administrator to so on. And so things like social media or things like data-centric approaches to understanding the world uh, often take time to filter through that pipeline because the conferences they're attending aren't necessarily the research conferences that are advancing these fields. Uh, they're often related more so to future trends and implementations of, of uh, university models as, as there's a tremendous amount of pressure on administrators thinking about what the university is becoming and a lot of the strategies for understanding learning through a networked or neuroscience lens hasn't necessarily made it through, uh, through a lot of those administrative conferences. And then teacher faculty training, I think more importantly here it's about detecting nonsense and recognizing at what point you have to uh, look at the the, the messages you're receiving and the validity of those messages or whether that application even has any practical purpose. 
And so these are a few recommendations, at least in trying to integrate these two fields slightly. Just want to draw attention to two particular conferences. One is the uh, AWARE conference that will be happening at Stanford, looking at wearables and uh, the education process in terms of data collection opportunities from that. And the second is the Learning with MOOC conference that's happening at Penn State. No, you have Penn. They'd be mad if I said Penn State. Okay, so that's roughly it for here. So I'll pause here and just see if there's any questions or comments. I timed it right out for four o'clock, so I should get a gold star. Okay, so we have time for a few questions. Thanks very much for a, a very interesting and seemed to be a somewhat skeptical talk. I was wondering, concretely, if somebody's a teacher you know, with, let's say, a thousand or five hundred students facing them, what can you suggest is the most useful thing they can do in terms of all of the tools that we're being shown and offered? It's a terrific question and one that's absolutely impossible to answer, but that won't stop me. Uh, so I think, first of all, you do need to, let's say we have a system that has some level of existing data collection practices. So let's say you're using Blackboard or using DTL or something. Um, uh, there's a few things that you can do just in terms of the analytics capability of those platforms. So if you, a lot of this would depend on what's the scope and the size of your students. So if you have a small number of students, that uh, let's say 15 PhD students, you really don't need learning analytics. Like learning analytics essentially are required in order to bridge and mediate the population relationship we have with a large number of students and one faculty member. Or where student activity happens across multiple courses and we only have that one sliver. That's where learning analytics are practical. But there's a few things, certainly from neuroscience, and this is where I'm so afraid to provide examples because there's a hundred books out there of an educator that'll write, well, this is what we have to do uh, in terms of uh, neuroscience in the classroom. And they'll emphasize a lot of the similar things. Introduce novelty. Uh, rely on the use of storytelling. Like present your data in a non-factual way, but present it through ways that motivate and stimulate learner activity. Uh, be aware of the, the ways in which the human brain functions well. You know, we can't handle hypothetically somebody lecturing at you for 45 minutes on neuroscience and analytics. It's a pretty crappy technique. You need 10, 15 minutes of activity followed, or of instruction followed by some level of activity. Another thing you should do is randomly every 20 minutes tell your students to leave the classroom, go for a walk and come back. Uh, you know, understanding the mind-brain connection, uh, the mind-body connection, I should say. But to get at the one thing you could do, I guess I would say at a surface level, look at what you have for existing data and look at what that existing data can tell you about how to instruct students and when you lose them either in terms of engagement or boredom. Yeah, George, thank you. Um, so when we look at the fourth paradigm and the way that data has transformed established fields, do you look at that and think, well, that will or will not transfer to education because education is somewhat different from the human genome or particle physics, like genes and uh, particles do not have strong views about the way they're studied. Yeah. People and teachers do. Or are you looking at neuroscience and thinking there's some really big lessons we can learn from neuroscience because just as, just as analytics is for the first time making things visible that we never knew we could see before, are there lessons or cul-de-sacs to avoid going down that the neuroscientists have already mapped for us? Yeah, there's probably a few books and a few, um, uh, a few conferences and many PhDs in that question. I think, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. First of all, I would say that no, nothing, there's like neuroscience, and this is the Royal Society when they did their publication, the implications of neuroscience in education. They're very clear to state, like there's, this isn't a solution. This is at best another tool that we can use to understand the situation that's before us. And I think the same holds true with, uh, with analytics in the education setting. I would say the one idea that I find the most broadly relevant is uh, what's happening in complexity theory or complexity science. So that's probably the one that I would say, if there's one thing we should know as educators, what is it? I'd probably say complexity science first, and then everything flows from that. This idea that, that variables and relationships exist conditionally, the idea of if-then statements. So uh, from that perspective, I do think that we can learn a lot 
educationally, you know, learning practices, learning processes, but we're not going to start to see this complete mechanization of a social process. Like complex social systems can't be reduced the same way that, let's say, mapping a genome can be reduced. So from that end, I would say, no, I don't expect that'll be the impact. I do think from neuroscience perspective, there'll be a pretty big impact, I believe, if we, if we are able to integrate it systemically. So we're well aware of the benefit of nutrition and physical activity. What's interesting, though, is as a society, we're progressively getting heavier. So on the one hand, yes, we know the research is there, but you know, even was it a couple of years ago in Canadian context, at least, we started taking pop machines or soft drink machines out of schools because I was contributing at least one of the factors. But it's a far bigger societal factor. That's why I'm quite encouraged by the attention being paid to well-being writ large and the attention being paid to contemplative practices and so on because I think there's a lot more value there in understanding uh, the human brain and how the human brain functions optimally. So that's just a long way of me absolutely not answering your question but just talking for a little bit. Thank you. Any other questions? Remember, he's capable of answering the tough ones too, so don't hold back. Uh, George, hi. So kind of a segue off that, uh, maybe uh, give us a bit of a, your insight or uh, comment on kind of a paradox that I've been thinking about for years that in higher education communities full of really clever people, world-leading researchers, towers of excellence, we've done such a poor job as institutions providing systems to, to really get to our learning analytics our educational analytics and our academic analytics. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, that as institutions we've failed when we've, we've actually got so much excellence embedded in our organizations? I mean, I would say you're absolutely right. It is a big issue and it's, it's uh, sad in a way. I was on a panel recently and, and one of the, uh, the partners on the panel, uh, she ended up stating that, you know, why are we always abusing our universities? You know, it's, everybody's always saying the end of university, this will be the new future. And, Quite often they're consultants or corporate entities that would like universities to be more like a corporation. And her point was, well look at everything that's innovative and exciting, like the very nature of a university is remaking knowledge regularly, continually. The difficulty that we've had, I think has been around vision and leadership for what does a university look like in, in today's digital age. And so in that case we're sort of the, you know, the, the shoemaker's children that don't have any shoes. And, you know, whereas, yeah, we're, we're advancing knowledge on these fronts and, and certainly with the learning analytics, the Sydney analytics work going on, there's a, in Australia as a whole, there's an enormous amount of activity happening in analytics. Unfortunately, that's not having the kind of impact in our own practices. So we've advanced the research domain, and this is a point I mentioned earlier within neuroscience, is that we've advanced our understanding on a number of fronts of what's happening in the brain during creative processes, the overall value of well-being and all those factors of physical health and diet and sleeping well and all those things. And yet, it's not reflected in our classroom or in the structure of our university activities. So you're absolutely right, it's a real problem and there's, you know, it requires leadership and it requires something, but it's something that we do face. I think at this point we're gonna thank George again for the talk. Thank you.